It's good to be together in worship tonight. I'm excited about this passage that we get to talk over today. Now, you might look at the passage that we have in front of us, if you're familiar with it, and you might say, why are you excited about this passage? It's, it's all about Jesus on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane in this prayer of anguish, and the moment of Jesus' betrayal, and, and the time that Jesus was taken away by the Jewish leaders. Well, it is a, a sober passage, it's a somber passage, but I believe that the thing that God has for us tonight in this passage is going to be so exciting and so helpful, I pray, and useful to each one of us. And I want to start off tonight by saying hi to our Grace Greenbush congregation. We're recording for them. And you know what, Grace Latham, can we just say all together, can we say hi, Grace, Grace Greenbush, all together? One, two, three. Hi, Grace Greenbush. All right, yeah, it's good to be. You know, we're in two different locations, but we worship the same God with the same heart. And so it's good to be together in worship. Now, I want to begin tonight with telling you a story, a story, something that happened to my family just a couple months ago. And I don't know if you guys know, my wife, Clemmy, she is from the Ivory Coast, which is a small country in the western part of Africa. And Clemmy and I have been married for six years, but I've never had the chance to actually go over and visit the place where Clemmy was born and visit the place where she grew up. And there's many of her family members that I haven't met. And so this past summer... Clemmy and I and our five kids, all seven of us, we had the chance to, to get on a plane and go over, and we spent more than two weeks in the Ivory Coast this summer. And boy, let me tell you, that was, that was something. <laughs> We've got a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 4-year-old, a 2-year-old, and at the time, JJ was three months old. And boy, going over on that transatlantic trip and being over there for two weeks... Uh, it was a lot of things that we weren't expecting. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, though. We had a lot of fun. We got to eat some great food. We got to see Clemmy's baby pictures for the first time. It was a real sweet time that we had together as a family. But by the time that two weeks were over, we were pretty whooped. We were pretty exhausted. Emotionally and physically and even spiritually, our, our rhythms were all kind of different while we were over there. And we were ready to come home at the end of those two weeks. We were a little bit homesick. It was right around Labor Day weekend that we were coming home, and my older girls were getting ready to start school, and they were excited about that, but they wanted to have a few days to kind of get into rhythm back here. And they had not seen their mom for three weeks, so they were missing her, and we were just, the little girls wanted to be back to their playgrounds and back to their friends and their toys, and we were ready to come home. And that Thursday when we left Clemmy's mom's house and we went to the airport Thursday morning, um, we were just, we were good to go. We were exhausted, we'd had a great time, and we were good to go. But when we got there, sadly, we found out that our flight for that day had been canceled. And we were there for about five hours, actually, in the airport lobby before we found that out, and just waiting and trying to find out information, and nobody was at the desk. But finally, they told us the flight was canceled, and Clemmy was able to work out a time where we'd be able to get another flight the next day, Friday. And so we stayed another day, and we went back on Friday morning. But you know what? Things weren't any better on Friday morning. On Friday morning, it was tough. We, uh, we waited again, and nobody came to the airline desk, and nobody came, and nobody came. And finally, we got word after our plane was supposed to have taken off that that flight wasn't going to make it either. And so Clemmy was there at the desk, and, and here we are with six bags and five kids and, you know, Ivory and Evie, they're four and two, and they just wanted to run and run and run, and I put 11 miles on my Fitbit that day in the lobby. I'm not kidding. 11 miles. Because the, as the day went on, it got harder and harder and harder for us to get out. Five hours turned into six, turned into seven, 
8. And first they said, hey, we can get you a flight out tomorrow, Saturday. And then they said, no, 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 I'm sorry, that flight's booked. And they said, oh, there's first class tickets, but we can't give them to you. And then they said, they're booked. And then they said, maybe Monday, we can get you out on Monday. Now, we were supposed to leave on Thursday. Monday was Labor Day. And it seemed like the whole situation was falling apart, and we were just getting yanked this way and that way, and it was so frustrating. And like I said, we were, we were depleted at that point. And so it just felt like just, it felt like an attack, honestly, like an ambush from the enemy is what it felt like. And it was stretching us. And as a family, we were stressed out, and the girls were crying. And, you know, as eight hours turned into nine, turned into 10, we were frustrated, really frustrated. And Clemmy was crying. And finally, we got tickets that were uh, to get us home later that night. Finally, we got tickets for that night. But then we went up to the desk to exchange our tickets for boarding passes, and they told us that JJ's ticket was invalid, and we weren't going to be able to get on the plane at all that night because his ticket wasn't valid. And so there we were after waiting 12 hours to get on the plane, and we were denied right at the door. And right then, I was standing close enough to the, a Wi-Fi hotspot that my phone made a noise, and I pulled it out, and it was the version verse of the day. It was Hebrews 12.1. Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, seeing as we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us or besets us, and let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us. And I knew that that verse came on my phone right then for us, that we needed it that day. And I showed it to Clemmy, and I showed it to my older girls, and we continued to pray and thank God, he opened a way for us to get home. They, the tickets, they made a way for the ticket to work for us to get to Paris. But our, our difficulties weren't over then. At Paris, they told us his ticket to New York wouldn't work. We had to buy a new ticket at Paris. I got sick, violently sick on the way home. We ran out of diapers on the way home. Can you imagine? That was bad. We weren't planning on being in the airport for 15 hours. It was 15 hours in the Abidjan airport. That's why I put 11 miles on. And then when we got to Newark, they told us that they had left the car seat in Paris. So it was just one thing after the other, after the other. And we were exhausted. And finally, eventually, we made it home. Thank God, we made it home. And the next day, when everybody was still asleep, I got up early and I went out to the dining room table and I opened my Bible and I looked at that verse, Hebrews 12:1, And I said, God, I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I ran that race with endurance. I don't feel like I did that well. God, show me, show me how to do this better. And I did a word study on that word endurance, and that's a whole nother message in itself. But then there's that word, run with endurance, the race that is set before you. And that word race comes from a Greek word, agon, which is where we get the word agony from. And strangely enough, it's a word that turns up in its feminine form in the passage that we're going to read today, agonia. It's when Jesus was in great anguish in his prayer in the garden, in agony. And the Greeks would use that word to describe when they would, when the athletes would come into the arena for the Olympics or for a great competition, that word agony. It was their moment of agony, the moment of testing. It was the moment that they knew that they were going to be tested to the very limits of who they were. In these games, we think of the decathlon and stuff like that, but the Greek games were also wrestling and boxing, and they had this savage form of MMA that would, would make ours look tame by comparison. They were going to be tested in this moment of agony to the very limits of who they were. 
And I don't know why, but for us that day, maybe it was because we were so depleted in so many ways and felt so ambushed that that felt like an agonizing day for us. But it, it holds nothing next to the agony that Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane there. And so we're going to look at that passage together tonight. Because you know what? Each of us, each of us, I believe if you've lived long enough, you've had a moment of personal agony in your life. A moment where everything changed on a dime and you knew that nothing was going to be the same after that. For some of us, it was the moment where we were sitting in the doctor's office and she came in and you could tell by the look on her face that the news wasn't good and that nothing was going to be the same. Or maybe it was when your parents sat you down and they said, honey, we're going to get a divorce. And nothing in your life was the same after that. Or maybe it was when you found out your spouse was cheating on you. Or your partner in business, your good friend that you'd gone into business with had betrayed you had taken everything and had left you with nothing. Maybe it was that day that there was a knock on the door from the police officer and the news that you got that day changed your life forever. For each of us, if you haven't had a moment like that yet, chances are you probably will. And I wanted to know, and I want to know tonight for all of us, what's, what did Jesus model in that? And when he faced that moment of agony, how did he prepare for that? How did he respond to that moment of agony? How did the disciples prepare and respond to that moment of agony? And that's what we're going to look at together tonight in this passage. And tonight we have a special treat. We have Edna um, Olson and George Schuhart, and they are from our Greenbush campus. And they're going to come up now, and George is going to read the passage for us tonight, and Edna is going to open us up in prayer. George and Edna are the leaders of the Greenbush Prayer Ministry, and so it's appropriate that they come to, to lead us tonight. We're going to read Luke 22, 39 to 53. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. One, on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling on, on the, on <clears throat> to the ground. Sorry. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep. Exhausted from sorrow, why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, the crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He, he approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what they were going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he and he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said 
to chief priests, officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. God Almighty, in this hour that darkness reigns, we thank you that we're not without you. That you so love that you gave us a Lord and a Savior that made us to be your children. And as your children, we stand before you tonight, Father, and we call out to you and we ask you. We ask you to, like has been said, open the eyes of our heart that we can see you and hear you and not just know about about you, but know you. Thank you for being in this place with us, and thank you for bringing us through everything that you have to this place and to this time, to this hour, to know you and to love you and to be with each other. And Father, with one heart and with one mind and with one, one soul, we cry out to you, God, to teach us your will. to help us to understand what we're going to hear tonight and what you personally have for each one of us. Thank you, Father, for your great, great grace, for your mercy, and for your wonderful spirit and word. Thank you that that word reaches into each and every heart tonight and empowers each and every child of yours to know you better. Thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Now, it's appropriate. Yeah, we can give them a hand. All right. <laughs> it's appropriate that we had uh, Edna and George come up because they're the prayer ministers at Greenbush. And, and you know what? This sermon is all about prayer. You heard George read the title of the sermon, Get Up and Pray. And I believe, as we'll see as we unpack this, this passage together, that prayer is the key to all of this. So let's look together. Let's look at how Jesus prepared for this moment and how the disciples prepared, how Jesus responded and how the disciples responded. Now, when you look at this, this passage that George just read, this, these 15 verses, man, there are a lot of story beats in this passage, right? There's them going to the Mount of Olives. There's them, uh, Jesus praying and instructing the disciples to pray, him coming back to the disciples Judas's betrayal, the whole thing with the sword and the ear and all of that, and, and then Jesus confronting the, the Jewish leaders about the way that they were going about this. There's, there's all these, these moments in here. And when you look at the passage, just as 15 verses, it can be hard to say, okay, well, what's the big thing to pull out of this? But when we step back a little bit, which is what we did and as we prepared, when I say we, Brian Gare and I, who's the discipleship director, Brian Gare is the discipleship director here at Latham, when we prepared for this, we took a step back and we said, what's, what's the place of this passage in the grand story of Jesus Christ's life and ministry here on earth? And really, I think this passage is the crux. This is the hinge that the whole ministry and life of Jesus turns on. Nothing is the same in Christ's life after this passage. Before this passage, Jesus was ministering freely and, and he had crowds and multitudes that listened to him. He did miracles and healing. Before this, the, the disciples were around him all the time. After this moment, this moment of agony, this personal crisis, 
the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, all of that changed. All of that changed. He was alone. He was abandoned. He was ambushed. And so Jesus knew this moment was coming, though. And how did he prepare for this moment? How did he prepare for it? He prepared with prayer. If there's one thing that I want you to go home with after this service, it's to prepare with prayer. It's so crucial, and it's so important. This domino that fell, Judas's betrayal, it was the first domino to fall in this sequence of events that brought Jesus to the crucifixion. And Jesus chose to take the time before this moment and to pray a prayer of anguish to God the Father, a prayer of agony to God the Father. But you know what? He did that because prayer was not something that was foreign to our Lord Jesus. We look, even if we just look at the, at the gospel of Luke as a sample, in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, it says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This was a habit of his. And if we look at some of the iconic moments in Jesus' life and ministry, they're preceded by prayer. It's, it's hiding there in plain sight, but they're preceded by prayer. If you take, for instance, his baptism in Luke chapter 3, it says, as he was praying in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, that's when the Spirit of God descended like a dove and the voice came from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That happened as he was praying. In Luke 6, chapter 12, or chapter 6, verse 12, when he was choosing the, the 12 disciples, it said he stayed up all night the night before praying. And then he went out the next morning to his disciples and he chose the 12 apostles that morning after spending the night in prayer. In Luke 9, 28, at the transfiguration, when he took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, he took them up to pray. And he was transfigured before their eyes and they saw Jesus in glory before their eyes. That happened as they went up to pray. And then finally, that, that beautiful model of prayer, the beautiful example of prayer that Christ gave us in Luke chapter 11, the Lord's Prayer, that came as a result of Jesus going off to a certain place to pray. And when he returned, the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So the, that model even of the Lord's Prayer came out of the disciples seeing this life and this rhythm of prayer that Jesus had. So for him... To pray before these big moments, this was nothing for him. This was, this was what he was in the practice, in the habit of doing. It's how he prepared. Jesus prepared with prayer. Why? Why did he prepare with prayer? Why was that such a big deal? There's a book called The Celebration of Discipline. I love this book because it just goes through so many and unpacks so many spiritual disciplines that are great for us to have in our lives as believers. And in this book, in the chapter on prayer, the author says this. He said, in prayer real prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire the things he desires, love the things he loves, to will the things he wills. Progressively, we are taught to see things from his point of view. Prayer is as much about listening as it is about, as it is about asking. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was pursuing the will of the Father through prayer. He knew what was ahead. He knew the the physical, the spiritual, the emotional anguish, that cup of suffering that he was about to drink. He knew what was coming. And he knew that he needed to spend time with the Father in prayer. And we see this intimate, personal conversation between him, the, him and the Father when he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he submitted himself in that moment to, 
to the Father's will. Now, that stands in stark contrast to how the disciples prepared, unfortunately. He, Jesus knew what was coming, and so he told them to get up and pray. Get up and pray so you don't enter into temptation. But they were exhausted with sorrow. And they're so exhausted that that's where they stayed. They stayed in their exhaustion and in their sorrow. And they didn't pray. And when the moment came, when that moment came, their reaction was so much different. And their response was so much different than the response of Jesus Christ. But you know what? The disciples didn't really have a habit, didn't have really have a lifestyle of going to God in prayer. At least not that we can tell. Because as we looked through, the, Brian and I looked through the, the gospel of Luke to see, well, where else do we see the disciples praying in the book of Luke? And we looked, and we looked, and we looked, and we couldn't find any place in the Gospel of Luke that we see the disciples praying. Now, that's not to say that they didn't pray. We would assume that they did, but that's to say that it wasn't part of their life like it was a part of Jesus' life. At least it wasn't recorded that way. And we know that in this moment, Jesus told them to pray, and they didn't. They didn't prepare with prayer the way Jesus did. I read a quote this week, and it talked about this kind of spiritual discipline in our life. And it, to say, uh, the author, his name was Dallas Willard, he said, to, to respond in the moment in the way that Jesus would requires us to live before that moment the way Jesus lived and prepare before that moment the way Jesus prepared. He said, even, even an act of God, we can't even expect an act of God to help us respond in a godly way if we've lived kind of a godless way up into that point. And he gives the example that, uh, you know, you can't walk into a, an Olympic Games and expect that you're going to win a gold medal in any event just by showing up and having a lot of heart and being in the moment. If you're going to win in the Olympics, it takes a lot of discipline and time and preparation and energy to get there. Did you guys know Simone Biles, who's a fantastic gymnast, she was in world competitions earlier this month. And she meddled in every single event that she was in. And she did it with a kidney stone. Can you imagine that? Now, it's just as ridiculous for us to think that we can respond like Jesus in the moment without preparation as is to think that we can gold medal in an Olympic event without preparation. I would suggest that none of us try gymnastics with no preparation. That would be a sad sight. But that's just as ridiculous as thinking that we can that we can act like Jesus in a situation without doing the things Jesus did, without preparing like Jesus. So in the disciples, he asked them to pray because he knew the temptation that was coming on them, and he told them to pray, and they didn't do it. They didn't prepare with prayer. So here we are. Christ has prayed this agonizing prayer in the Garden of Eden, or I'm sorry, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives. The disciples are off to the side. It says a stone's throw away, and they're exhausted with sorrow. And after he gets done praying, he goes over and he says, get up and pray, get up and pray that you enter not into temptation. And just then, they see the torches coming from down the way, down the path, and they see the men with clubs coming. And right then, it's too late. This is the moment. This is the crux of the story, the moment of crisis, the moment of agony where everything turns on this hinge. So how did, he, how did Jesus respond in that moment? And how did the disciples respond in that moment? Well, we look at the response of Jesus, and Jesus stayed who he was. 
This was a fight or flight moment if there ever was one. And Jesus did neither one. He didn't fight and he didn't flee. He remained true to who he was. He, he spoke a confrontational truth to Judas. He healed in a miraculous way. He spoke a confrontational truth to the men who had come to take him. He was true to who he was in that moment. The Bible says a lot about agony and testing and tribulation and trials. And especially in the New Testament, we see a lot of that as we know that's part of our life in the family of God. We know that's part of our life of growth as believers. And this word tribulation comes up a lot in the New Testament. And this word tribulation, if you look at it, it means oppressing or a testing. And it, and it brings to mind the way that, that grapes are pressed to make wine. Pressed so that everything that's inside of them comes out during this moment of pressing and testing. And that's what was happening in this moment of agony, in this moment of crisis with Jesus and the disciples. They were being pressed. And when Jesus was pressed, what was inside him came out. His confrontation of evil and injustice came out. His love and compassion for that servant who had his ear cut off came out of him. And his submission to the will of the Father came out in this moment of pressure and testing. For the disciples, again, sadly, it was the same for them. It was a fight or flight moment, like we said, and they fought and fled. They asked, is this the time to use our swords? And before they even got an answer, Peter hacks off the, the guy's ear. And then we know from when we continue reading that they fled and they left Jesus alone. Sadly for them also, this moment of pressure brought out who they really were. It was tough. It was tough. And so when we look at this story, what, where do we go with this? Who do you identify with in this story? Do you identify with Jesus who prepared with prayer? Or you identify with the disciples who, who gave in to self-reliance? And when we look at that passage where Jesus says that you enter not into temptation, I, I believe he was talking about, you know, you can read a bunch of things of what people think that temptation was. To me, the simplest answer seems like the best. The temptation that they were about to face was the temptation to enter that moment of crisis and of ambush in self-reliance. Just going in with whatever emotion or with whatever the best intentions they had. And that's exactly what they did. They, they fell to that temptation, and Jesus withstood that temptation to react in the flesh. So who do you identify with in this passage? Do you identify with Christ who prepared in prayer and in the moment of crisis, he was able to stand firm and submit himself to the Father's will? Or do we identify with the, the disciples who were exhausted, who were full of sorrow, who chose not to pray, who chose not to make prayer a habit in their life from what we can tell in their whole time with Christ? Man, that's a tough question. You might say, my life isn't easy, Jeff. You don't, you don't understand. My life isn't easy. I don't have time to pray. I, I can't spend the time praying. I've got so many things going on. I've got so, much, so many obligations and commitments. That's exactly why we need to pray. That's exactly why we need to pray. And you know what? I'm grateful because, you know, I've, I was a single dad for a while. I know what it's like to have obligations and commitments. I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed. 
But God has kind of brought me on this journey of understanding the value and the importance of prayer. And I'm by no means have I arrived, but I know that God is growing me in this. And I'd love to, for a little while, just give you some tips and ideas of things that I've learned and things that I've done to be able to grow my prayer life with God's grace. But that would take quite a while to do that. But, but what I've done is I've put together a, a sheet of bonus content, and that's going to be available on our Latham and Greenbush Facebook pages on Sunday afternoon. So you can go and you can click on that, and that'll show you ways to build a prayer list and maybe resources to read to help you learn how to pray, things that you can do to grow in your prayer life. But you know what? All the tips and ideas and good intentions really don't amount to much if we don't decide in our heart that this is important, that this is a big deal, that we are going to do this. And so that's my challenge to you today, to to understand the value and the importance of prayer, to prepare with prayer, because we don't know what's around the corner in our lives. We don't know what the next day will bring, to prepare with prayer. And you know what? You can, even if you haven't been a person of prayer for your whole life up to this point, the good news is you can start today. It starts with a decision. It starts with a commitment. You can start today. And there's so much power and there's so much grace that comes with prayer. And I know this because we can follow the story of the disciples through the New Testament. And the cool thing about the Gospel of Luke is that Luke actually wrote a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, and it's called The Acts of the Apostles. And it's the same author. It's the same cast of characters, pretty much. The disciples are all through the, the Acts of the Apostles. And we see that the disciples learned this lesson. After Jesus' ascension, they learned this lesson of prayer. In the very first chapter of Acts, in verse 14, it says, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And we know that that gathering constantly in prayer in the beginning of the book of Acts, that led to Pentecost, which is where the Holy Spirit came in fire and, and inspired them and empowered them to go preach the gospel with authority. And thousands of people in Jerusalem were swept into the kingdom of God in that one day, praise God, that was preceded by prayer. They prepared with prayer for Pentecost. And there's another instance later on in the book of Acts where one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, the one who led the church in Jerusalem, he learned this lesson about prayer. He learned to retire, just like he had seen Jesus done, to quiet places to pray. He was visiting a family in Acts chapter 10, and he went up on the rooftop to pray. And the Lord gave him a vision, and that vision led to him ministering to a man named Cornelius, who was a, a Roman centurion. And up to that point, the gospel of Jesus had been preached almost exclusively to Jewish people at that point. And Peter needed this vision from God in this moment of prayer to be able to take the gospel beyond that community and into all communities. And you know what? You and I are here today because Jesus inspired that lesson in Peter. And Peter learned that lesson, and he learned to pray. And he got that vision from God. And when he went out to, to preach to Cornelius, and Cornelius was converted, he came back to the church in Jerusalem, and he said this in chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? to think that I could stand in God's way. 
When they heard this, they meaning the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And the gospel went out into the whole world because Peter learned that lesson to pray and the Lord was able to speak to him and work with him in ways that he wasn't able to before. So my question to you tonight as we wrap up is will you learn this lesson to prepare with prayer? Like I said, we don't know what's around the corner in our lives. We don't know what the next day will bring. For those of us who have had those moments of agony, those days of agony where the whole, your whole life seemed to change in a day, many of us didn't see that coming. It felt like an ambush. It came when we were weak, when we were not expecting it. And that reminds me of the passage where uh, the Apostle Peter says that our enemy walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. My daughter, Ivory, she's four years old. She loves animals, and she loves all things animals. She knows animals that I don't even know exist. But she loves lions and cheetahs the most. And she loves to sit on the couch with me and scroll through YouTube and find lion and cheetah videos. But i got to be careful with those because lions and cheetahs, they love to attack young, vulnerable animals. I don't want her seeing that stuff, but that's, that's how lions and cheetahs are. Lions, they want to get the most amount of carnage for the least amount of effort. And that's the way our enemy is. He walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And for us to be prepared for those, for those attacks, for us to not be that vulnerable, we need to prepare with prayer. The way Jesus did. The way the disciples learned to do. So my question is, will you learn this lesson today? And to follow that, I'll say, who will be? We're here because Peter learned that lesson. Who will be in the kingdom of God because you learn this lesson today, because you make this commitment today to spend time with God in prayer, to allow prayer to make our will into God's will, to align our heart with the Heavenly Father through prayer. And when we do that, the way he moves in us and the power that he gives us to minister to others, who will be? We're here because Peter learned that lesson. Who will be in the kingdom of God because you learned that lesson today and make that commitment today. It's in our hands right now. Each one of us can do this. Tomorrow can be the first day that you make a new rhythm of prayer in your life and just wait and see what God does with that. Let's bow our heads together today. Good Father, we're so thankful for your word and for your will for each one of us. Father, I thank you that your word is truth and that your Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. And we could look at this story tonight and we can see the suffering and the agony of Jesus, but we can see how he endured the cross, despising the shame, how he prepared for that agony with prayer. Lord, I pray for each one of us at Latham and at Greenbush that you would inspire in our hearts a desire to grow in prayer. Lord, that we would prioritize this above anything else. And Lord, I know that you're good for it. I know that you're going to bless us in that. You're going to give us power to minister in your spirit. And Lord, if we as a church body, as a congregation, move closer to you in prayer, you promised in your word as we draw nigh to you, you will draw nigh to us. And I thank you for that promise. We claim that today 
Father, we ask for that burden, for that, for that desire in our hearts, for that commitment to prepare with prayer. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.